0: Imagine the scenario. An important foreign political leader is visiting Dublin. As she makes her way to an engagement with the Taoiseach, an aircraft is detected flying towards the city. And it isn't responding to radio messages. As part of the defence plan for the visit, Irish Air Corps pilots will be ready to take to the sky in our best and only armed airplane, the PC-9. Retired Air Corps captain Kevin Phipps describes... What happens next?
1: So we will literally put an airplane in the air. The PC-9 is, is a turboprop aircraft. So as opposed to having a, a jet aircraft with afterburners, it has a propeller on the front of the aircraft. So it's a, it's a, it's a training aircraft, which has a very basic capability of intercepting slow-moving targets, such as Cessna's uh, light aircraft as such, and uh, helicopters We'll fly as fast as we can towards that threat, and then we'll try and visually identify the threat. And then we will come up alongside the aircraft and identify the aircraft, relay all that information relating to who's inside the cockpit, what type of aircraft it is, is it behaving itself, is it turning sharply. And then the pilot will be instructed to either shepherd the aircraft, tell it to to fly to a different airfield and land, or ultimately to shoot it down. Now, if we were to shoot the aircraft down in a, in a, a very last-ditch scenario, the PC-9 is armed with 2.5-inch heavy machine guns. So, you know, are they capable? Well, yes, they are very capable, as I said, of shooting down a slow-moving target.
0: And what if it's not slow-moving?
1: Well, I mean, you know, that's natural laws of physics. If you're doing 250 knots and the aircraft in front is doing 300 knots, it's going to pull away from you, isn't it? So, um, And that's why you need supersonic aircraft really to intercept high-speed jet aircraft at high altitude.
0: But luckily for our VIP visitor, another Air Force now comes to the rescue, the British Royal Air Force, the RAF.
2: So if a threat is detected in Irish airspace, either by... Irish authorities or more likely uh, British authorities, the RAF will scramble from uh, their base in Northern Scotland, RAF Lossiemount, to intercept the threat, whether that threat is a hijacked airliner or a Russian bomber uh, skirting uh, Irish-controlled airspace, will escort it from the airspace if possible, and uh, in the worst case scenario, will shoot it down if it poses an immediate threat that they can't deal with in any other way.
0: Irish Times crime and security correspondent Conor Gallagher reported this week on a secret arrangement dating back to the Cold War allowing the UK to police the Republic's airspace.
2: This is controversial for several quite obvious reasons. Number one, uh, we're a sovereign country relying on another country to protect us. Number two, we're a sovereign country which has a a very public position of military neutrality, of not being a member of military alliances, but in one very specific way we are a member of a military alliance in that we have a joint defence agreement with another country. And the third one, I suppose, is the secrecy of it all. It's been Irish government policy not to comment or to deny the existence Of this agreement going back to uh, when it started.
0: This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, why does Ireland depend on Britain's armed forces to protect our skies? Connor, the Defence Forces, it's made up of three parts the Army, the Navy, and the Air Corps, land, sea, and air, to protect and serve. You say from your investigation that when it comes to protecting our airspace, we have an air corps that is simply not fit for purpose. In what way?
2: I suppose if anyone thinks of an air force and what the primary role of an air force is, it's the defence of the state from airborne threats. Uh, Our air force has never been geared towards that. Well, no, sorry, that's a little bit unfair. During World War II, uh, we did have a substantial number of planes, certainly more planes than we ever had at any other point in our history. We had uh, hurricane fighters, we had a few Spitfires, we even had a few bombers. Um, but after World War II, these were judged surplus to requirements and most of them quickly became obsolete anyway. So from, say, 50s and 60s onwards, the Air Corps... As it's called, because you don't have an air force, uh, became geared towards civil operations and very, very important civil operations uh, that will be based around the use of helicopters. Uh, so that's search and rescue, air ambulance missions, um, and other kind of uh, aid to the civil power missions, like supporting the guards when um, uh, during the troubles, you know, in, in tracking down IRA suspects, that sort of thing. And of course, uh, it's the Air Corps who fly to guard the Garda helicopters and maintain the Garda helicopters to this day. But we have no aircraft, and uh, and basically since World War Two or shortly after World War Two, we've had no aircraft that would fulfil a air defence role. They're certainly not capable of intercepting one of these huge Russian bombers that have been plying their trade on our uh, west coast in the last couple of years. They're not capable of reaching that altitude, nor are they capable of reaching those speeds. And they would be entirely incapable of intercepting a hijacked commercial aircraft, which is one of the big fears after 9-11. Um, again, they don't have the, the altitude and they don't have the speed.
0: So you've talked about uh, the inadequate equipment uh, the Air Corps has. And there's a reason for that, though. It's not purely about funding. It's much bigger than that, because it goes to the heart of our independence as a republic. We rely on the RAF, Britain's Royal Air Force, to keep us safe in an arrangement that goes back decades.
2: So uh, we've Heard rumours of this arrangement uh, for the last couple of decades. And indeed, there's been newspaper reports saying it dates to uh, just after 9-11. Actually, it seems it dates back much, much further to the early days of the Cold War. This uh, arrangement was first agreed in 1952. So that's only seven years after World War II ended. You've got the Cold War kind of heating up. You know, the the, the tensions are very high between the two, uh, West and East. The Brits are worried about this. Uh, They see Ireland as kind of a a big gap, because Ireland's obviously not a NATO member. So an agreement was uh, reached between officials from both sides that if there was an emergency, the RAF uh, could come in and take action.
0: So at the time, the agreement was, in a sense, to benefit Britain, but now the agreement benefits us.
2: The agreement still benefits Britain, and it primarily benefits Britain. Think of it as, say, the hijacked airliner a terrorist is going to want to go for London rather than Dublin if they want to make a big statement in that very, very unlikely scenario. And the Russians, when they are flying down our west coast, they're testing response times. They're not testing our response times because they know we don't have any response times. They're testing the RAF response times. But they are also in our civilian airspace, Irish-controlled airspace, with no transponders turned on. So the transponder is the thing that makes you visible on radar to civilian air traffic so this is incredibly dangerous if you're if, if you've got a uh, and these are huge planes and sometimes they trail uh, massive cables communication cables off the back so really significant danger there to civilian air traffic control uh so the RAF will you know come and intercept these escort them from the airspace it benefits us but it also benefits the the RAF the RAF don't want these guys there any more than we do
0: Connor, can you take us back to the start? How did we end up coming to such an arrangement in the first place?
2: If you look at the history of Ireland and the UK since independence, there's always been a, a tacit agreement that they would have a certain amount of leeway in terms of our waters and airspace. That was certainly the case during uh, World War II uh, when we had the famous Donegal Corridor. That's that kind of bit of land that joins Donegal with the rest of the Republic. On the North Atlantic, you'd British anti submarine and anti ship aircraft in Loch Foyle. If, if they wanted to go out into the Atlantic to intercept German U uh, boats and ships, technically they'd have to fly all the way up around Donegal and then come down. But we had an agreement, tacit agreement, that they could fly over Donegal, over that, that's, that little bit of land, um, as long as they did so at a certain altitude and it was uh, in secret. They actually ignored that as well, and everyone up there would see the British planes flying over. But anyway, that was very much tacit and a part of our response to the World War II and our kind of ambiguous uh, neutrality there. But fast forward seven years later to uh, 1952, uh, and you've got a new global conflict of sorts, the Cold War, you know, and, and the Cold War is very much in, in, in train now. Tensions are high between East and West. Ireland has failed in its bid to join NATO. Ireland wanted to join NATO but only if it got the six counties back. And they were hoping the Americans would pressure the British to give us the six counties back. So, uh, and then we would join NATO. The uh, Americans told us basically to get lost, and that was that. And then we became so virtuously neutral. But then we still had this very serious problem where we had no means of protecting ourselves against the Soviet threat, as we've seen then. And even though we, were, uh, we said we were neutral... We were very, very much and very publicly on the side of the West, like in public statements saying, you know, if there's going to be another war, we would, we would be with the West, you know, because this was seen as a, was seen as a war between Christianity and, you know, Mm -hmm. godless communists. Um, and we knew very much which side we were on. Soviet Union was developing this new technology that could easily reach Ireland. It could reach America with their aircraft. These are these huge, uh, four-engine aircraft designed primarily for delivering nuclear weapons, but also has, as many other uses. Those aircraft are actually still in use today. So these were easily capable of reaching Northern Ireland and Ireland. And then you had this other thing that the Br- British were worried about is the, something called the Greenland-Iceland-United Kingdom gap. And that's this gap between kind of northern ireland and scotland all the way up to the greenland and iceland and it's kind of a naval choke point so if you if you have a conflict between two superpowers that gives you access to the atlantic from uh, for russia so it's absolutely vital you control that so any kind of country that's beside that uh, and any waters that are beside that are going to be crucial to control as well so the irish and the british Both had their reasons for saying, "Okay, we need some sort of arrangement here. But obviously it had to be a secret arrangement because back in 1952, de Valera was still in power. It still had very cold relations uh, with the United Kingdom, uh, especially after World War II when Churchill kind of derided our neutrality somewhat unfairly. Relations were not good at the time, so it had to be a secret agreement. And it was worked out between civil servants uh, at the time. It was, it was brought to cabinet renewed over the years. Politicians were aware of it, but no one seemed to pay uh, uh, much interest in it. And then people paid even less interest in it when, uh, you know, the fall of the, the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. The other symptom of that is we never bothered to invest in our, our own air defence uh, because we knew that if worse came to the worst, we had this uh, fallback.
0: In practice, have we ever called on the RAF to protect us? To my knowledge, during
2: those incidents in 2020, when there was uh, two occasions within the the space of a week, when Russian um, Tu-95 aircraft—these are these bombers that descend from those bombers that were first developed in the 1950s—they are bombers, but they're also used as kind of long-range maritime patrol and surveillance aircraft. They were spotted in our airspace. It's my understanding that RAF jets uh, were given permission to enter Irish airspace on those occasions to intercept the jets and escort them from Irish-controlled airspace. And when I say Irish-controlled airspace, I suppose I should make it clear, not Irish-territorial airspace. So those Russian planes weren't breaching our territory um, they weren't breaching international law in that way. They might have been breaching aviation regulations, the way they were flying without their transponders on. But they hadn't actually breached Irish territory. They were in the area that Irish air traffic controllers are responsible for making sure is safe.
0: And then, of course, there was nine eleven, and hijacked commercial airplanes became a reality. How were we prepared to deal with that sort of threat, a plane being used as a weapon? Surely that was discussed at the time.
2: Oh it was, it was a huge topic of conversation both privately and uh, in the public sphere Um, in fact this was probably the first time politicians and and, and the public and the media were genuinely talking about air defence because this is a whole new reality before everyone just thought the threats were from hostile nations and little old Ireland on the Uh, uh, West Coast of Europe, you know, were very well insulated from that. But now you had uh, the the realisation that the threat couldn't be from a single hijacked airliner. Caused a a complete rethinking of the kind of uh, approach to air defence and air security across Europe. And it it caused Ireland to finally kind of start asking questions uh, about our own uh, role in this. Because also we have an incredibly busy corridor. Uh, for air traffic you have a huge amount of aircraft going over Irish airspace now as you did back in 2001 and and, in the years after so there was a good bit of public debate this agreement that we had with the RAF was updated to deal with this threat and but the the broad outline remained the same that the uh, RAF would be able to enter iris airspace and if absolutely necessary to take offensive action
0: Conor, before we move on to what all this means for Ireland in the 21st century, that we don't have an air defence and we rely on another country to give us one, this is something that most people probably aren't aware of.
1: Yeah,
2: well, it depends on how how closely you monitor these things because it it has appeared in the papers over the years. Various details of the deal have leaked out. And even on occasion, politicians either purposely or by accident I've made statements in the doll alluding to, to such a deal like back in I think it was 2005 Bertie Hearn was asked if the RAF would intercept aircraft over Ireland and he was Taoiseach at the time and he said there is a cooperation and pre-agreed understanding on those matters and then uh, going two years before that Minister of Defence at the time Michael Smith asked how Ireland would deal with a September 11 type of type attack and he said it is clear that outside assistance would be required. So um, it has been out there in bits and, and, and pieces, uh, but it hasn't been out there about how far back this goes, you know, that 71-year history of it and the kind of legal concerns that have been raised about it over those years.
0: There is a chance, though, now, it seems, that after decades of secrecy, we might finally learn more about the state's secret agreement with Britain, uh, and that's because of a High Court action.
2: Mm, Yeah. Um, Well, before I get to that, there has been a a couple of times over the decades where people have said, why don't we just make this public? It's not a national security issue. It might even increase our national security if people know there would be a a response if, if something happened in our airspace. It might make Irish people feel more safe. Uh, one of those people actually was Shane Ross. He uh, was Cabinet Minister uh, between 2016 and 2020. He was Minister for Transport. Uh, and, you know, this was being approved at Cabinet. And he was, and it would be approved and no one would object. It was kind of rubber stamped. Uh, Shane Ross was one of the few people to uh, to object, much to the kind of frustration of other Cabinet members, I understand. Um, and, and his main argument was, why is this a secret? Let's just... Come out and be public about this. There's no need for this cloak and dagger. And I, uh, you know, he obviously didn't get his way. Um, but there has been, you know, that has been raised over the years. And it's been raised again in a very public forum, the High Court, as you said. Uh, senator Jared Crockwell, he's a former uh, member of the uh, Irish Defence Forces and the um, British Army. Uh, he's an independent senator and he uh, is taking a case arguing. Uh, well he 's got several grounds, but uh, his main one is that this con- this agreement is unconstitutional because and it's, he says it 's unconstitutional under several um, uh, clauses of the constitution, including the fact that uh, international agreements are subject to doll approval. Um, so obviously this is invalid uh, because the dollars has never voted on it. Now, the case is in an early stage, I think they're just lodging their arguments and affidavits at the minute. Uh, Do we
0: get a sense of what the state's defence is going to be? I know it's the early stages. We know
2: the state's defence right now oh, okay. is that, that Crockwell doesn't have standing to take... Uh, this case, you know, that he, uh, he he's no he's no right to take this case. Now maybe if the court rules on that they might have to lodge a more robust uh, uh, defence but of course it's hard to see how you could lodge a defence while still keeping it secret. Um, it'll be an interesting case. I wonder how far it'll get because I know the High Court has always been really, and the Supreme Court uh, m- more so, uh, really reluctant to get involved in matters of international policy. Uh, and, and we've actually seen this before with uh, Shannon Airport, the Americans' uh, army using Shannon Airport in the raising of Iraq and Afghanistan. And there was a, a relatively famous case uh, brought before this saying this was a breach of our neutrality, Uh judgment from, I believe, Mr. Justice Nicholas Kearns. And he said, yeah, it's a breach of our neutrality, but... The court isn't going to get involved in matters of international affairs. That's a matter for the executive. Um, I could see them taking a similar stance here, uh, but I don't know. We'll have to see it play out. It'll be very, very interesting to
0: watch. Now, military arrangements are by their nature secretive. And this seems different, though. This is a sovereign, independent republic, us, re- relying on the British, the old enemy, if you like, to protect us Is that why the whole thing has been so secretive, do you think?
2: That's definitely a factor. Um, Yeah, possibly the the, the main factor is, yes, it's slightly embarrassing. And it also is uh, very much in contradiction to our idea of military neutrality. And that military neutrality has been defined by governments uh, over the decades as we do not involve ourselves in military alliances. So it's a very narrow form of neutrality. Um, it's not like the Swiss version of neutrality which is you know kind of ideologically based, ours is like we're not going to get involved in NATO and until further notice we're not going to get involved in any EU common defence pact uh, but arguably this uh, it contradicts that because there is an agreement or an understanding or a memorandum of understanding or whatever you want to call it uh, and I think just to go back to that Crockwell case, if it does get to a full hearing i imagine uh, and just from talking to people with knowledge of the agreement some people you talked to said well it's not really in contradiction to our neutrality because it's just a mechanism for us to request help but it's an existing mechanism you know so yeah, you can get very very jesuitical about this kind of thing
0: Connor in Ireland, you know, we're lucky enough that we can be oblivious to whether we have good air defence or not. You know, most people aren't aware of it at all, really. We're a small country, we're on the edge of Europe um, and that has its drawbacks. But it could be one of the positives. Oh, but... But could one of the positives be that, you know, we have very few threats. We just don't need to be concerned about this stuff, that we don't need to spend billions on air defence that could be better spent elsewhere. So, you know, why should we?
2: I think that's a really good point and a really important point um, that maybe sometimes gets lost in the debate. Uh, just, you mentioned the figure of billions. That is what it would cost to have uh, an air defence capability, which, you know, say a squadron of between 12 and 24 advanced jet fighters, radar system covering the whole thing, the uh, the crews and the training regime to do it. You're talking huge money. You're definitely talking about multiples of the current Air Corps budget. Um So why shouldn't we take advantage of, first of all, our geographic uh, position on the edge of Europe? You know, we don't have many enemies. Um, uh, Why shouldn't we take advantage of the fact that the RAF, it's in the RAF and Britain's interests to protect our airspace? So, like, let's just... uh, you know, let's take advantage of it. Why should we spend billions when they're going to do it anyway? Um, against that, obviously, you know, there's the arguments of neutrality and sovereignty, which are very important arguments as well. But it's it's a fact that we've made a constant decision over the years to spend that money elsewhere. Sometimes it was that we just didn't have the money full stop. And other times it was like, we're going to spend that money elsewhere. And even in the, within the defence budget, you know, that, that money went to the army. It went with equipping the army with uh, modern APCs for peacekeeping duty, that, that sort of thing. And... Um, and yeah, it leaves us unable to police our own our own airspace. While I was reporting this story, I asked uh, Captain Phipps about this.
1: I, I certainly think we need to pull our weight, um, but we need to do so in a in a manner which is uh, is in the national strategic interest. You know, so I mean, if you take a look at how much your how many tax dollars or tax euros are coming in every year from multinationals in Ireland, um, most of it's related to. Yeah, uh, the tech sector. You know how many data centers are popping up all around the the, the west uh, rim of of Dublin. You know, and where does that data come from? It comes through subsea cables, uh, and most of them are rooted off the west coast of the country. And and you know, have we the capability to see what's happening underneath the surface? Of have we this? Have we the capability to police what's above the ocean? We take all this stuff for granted until something um, something bad happens, and then we ask ourselves, well, "Why didn't we do this when we you know when we could have?" And and that's typical for a lot of things that happen in Ireland really isn't it the, you know, the great reform and
2: civil servant that uh, tk Whittaker, once compared our approach to defence in general as an uninsured driver you know most of the time you're going to get away with it uh, you're going to be fine and he says it's a conscious choice we've made um and he was very honest about it uh you know i think he was speaking in the 70s probably wouldn't get away with being an uninsured driver Quite as easy nowadays. But maybe a better analogy nowadays—it's like a young person without health insurance. You're going to be fine 99 percent of the time, and maybe it is smarter to invest your, use your money uh, elsewhere. But the other side of it is, the one time something does go wrong, it goes very wrong, or it could go very wrong, and and you're up a creek uh, without a paddle. Um, but then again, we have the RAF there, so why not be more open about it? Why not just say, yes, we have disagreement. Uh, well, it's a political question more than a a military question, I imagine.
0: Thanks to retired Air Corps captain Kevin Phipps and Irish Times crime and security correspondent Conor Gallagher. That's it for today. For more on this story, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.